with abundance comes resilience and with abundance these animals and the wildlife populations can thrive and can survive these climatic changes Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the World. I'm Ben Goldsmith and I'm lucky enough to be sitting here with Andrea Powell who's calling from Cape Town. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Hi Ben, really grateful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So Andrea leads an organization called Orca, the Orange River Caru Conservation Area, which has an emphasis on rewilding a really mind-bogglingly vast potential area in southern Namibia. Um, Andrea, can we start, please, by talking about Namibia more generally? Where is Namibia? How big is Namibia? And where are the remaining intact landscapes in Namibia? Yeah, so Namibia is in southern Africa. We border with South Africa and Botswana and Angola. It's largely a desert-based country and it's very underpopulated. There's only about 2 million people in the entire country. And specifically, Orca is based in the deep south of Namibia. It's as south as you can get. We're right on the border of South Africa. And the, the northern part of Namibia is is still reasonably intact, as I understand it. I mean, my, my mother is 89 and she's been on one safari holiday in her life. She went in the 1960s with John Aspinall and others, and they went for a desert safari to the northern part of Namibia. And she remembers seeing elephants on the beach and, and all kinds of extraordinary wildlife. Is that still the case in the northern part of that country? Yeah, I would say the northern part of Namibia is where most of the wildlife conservation is, most of the wildlife tourism as well. Most of our nature reserves and national parks are all centered around northern Namibia. Um, Southern Namibia, we have community conservancies, but there's very little to none conservation tourism or wildlife tourism. So most of southern Namibia was given over really to cattle ranching, wasn't it? My understanding is that huge numbers of very large ranches, a lot of barbed wire fencing and not much wildlife remaining. Exactly. So by the time Namibia gained independence in 1991, most of southern Namibia was portioned off as commercial farmland. And predominantly where we are, specifically where we are in the south, in the deep south, it was caracal farming. And the reason why it was such an affluent industry and the farmers were doing so well is it because the sheep did not have to get fat and they could thrive off an environment that had very little grazing. You actually take a caracal lamb two to three weeks prematurely before they're meant to give birth. You take a little bit of the chin and you take a little bit of the belly. And this amazingly soft and delicate pelt was used in the fashion industry. And then in the 60s, when Born Free came in, they ran a massive campaign and um, caracal farming became illegal. And so overnight in southern Namibia, we had uh, an industry just turn on its face. And so well, we had livestock farming and commercial farmers doing well. Overnight, most of the people lost their industry and lost their economy. So we're dealing with a very sort of neglected farming landscape at the moment. When you, when you said caracal, I thought for a moment you meant the caracal, the, the leaping wildcat that lives through Africa and parts of Asia. Uh, so the caracal is a type of sheep which produces this extra soft wool. Um, and so when, when the caracal sheep farming industry collapsed, what was the answer? Did they bring in cattle or did they bring in more conventional sheep? What, what, what happened to those farmers? So there is cattle farming in the area. It's um, We have a lot of 
the um, and then goat farming and sheep. They brought in other types of sheep and other types of goat, but um, the land cannot sustain that much um, grazing. So there's a bit of browse um, and there's a little bit of grazing, but as climate change is increasing and the drought spells are getting longer and longer, there isn't enough time for the seed bank to recover. And so if you've got heavy grazing cattle and a lot of pressure on the rangeland, the land just can't support it. So the answer was people were buying up um, more and more areas of land. Um, farmers were growing their farms and trying to sort of move their their livestock according to the greener pastures and according to the summer and winter rains. But then, you know, we've hit a threshold now. And we're talking typically white South African farmers. Are we in terms of the people who own most of this land? Yeah, so these are European settlers, um, Dutch European settlers. We have a few Irish families as well, but they're predominantly they're Dutch. And... In terms of the environmental obstacles that stand in the way of the recovery of of wildlife in this part of Namibia, um, desertification, we've talked about overgrazing by domestic livestock. What about fencing? I mean, how important an issue is the fencing itself that divides all these ranches? Yeah, so to paint a picture, why we're there and why we're doing conservation there is because no other region in sub-Saharan Africa has had more mass extinction of large mammals than this area. So in this area, we used to have elephants, we used to have hippos on the Orange River. We had lion, we had wild dog, wildebeest, spotted hyena. You had these amazing amount of predators that used to keep the numbers and the abundance of antelope in flow and moving. And they would move with the rains and they would have huge access to areas of land because in the desert biomes, it's very context specific. It's very, very acute to where it rains. So wildlife need to be able to move. So when the farming came through, they portioned all the properties and then we saw the end of the huge migrations of antelope. Then also came disease and also with hunting, just kind of decreased their biodiversity level. Tell me a little bit about the migration that used to exist in that part of Namibia. So it's called the Trek Bakken. And so if you know the Great Serengeti migration today, this migration of Springbok would dwarf the zebra and wildebeest migration that we see today. So when we first moved into the area, I met up with the farmers and I got some diary accounts and um, archives of stories that they wrote. And they said that for about three to four weeks, they would have to be locked up in their farmhouses, in their farmsteads, and not be able to leave the property because as far as the eye could see, there was springbok. And they would just wait for three or four weeks. And these were 66 million springbok used to come through the area. Wow, that's just, I think this is the thing that I talk about in a lot of these episodes. It's just the lost abundance that we've experienced in recent generations in the world. I mean, people alive today have real difficulty fathoming the scale of these wildlife migrations that used to exist. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who told me that eyewitnesses from East Anglia said that there were rivers of birds in the sky for days and skies would darken with migrating geese and wildfowl and so on up, up the eastern part of Britain. The number of fish in British waters, I mean, just, you know, the herring fishery, you know, 10 miles by 10 miles, kind of one shoal. You know, the, someone described it as like one single beast trying to lift itself out of its bed. I mean, the size of this thing. I think but that's what we've lost touch with. And, and so what, what is Orca? Just one thing that I would like to add on that, Ben, is that, you know, with abundance comes resilience. And, 
the desert biome is so fragile and it's so sensitive that we, we're going to get cycles of drought. We're going to get disease. But with abundance, these animals and the wildlife populations can thrive and can survive these climatic changes. Um, so I think it's just important to note that. So orca. Orca is the Orange River Karoo Conservation Area. We are a very new organization. Um, it's a nonprofit reserve. And we secure and partner with local landowners to secure a conservation area. And the ultimate vision is to have a 2.5 million acre reserve, a transboundary reserve. Because as you can imagine, the Orange River is a national border between Namibia and South Africa. But, you know, borders mean nothing in terms of conservation and wildlife. And so the idea is that um, Orca will partner and secure land on the Namibian side of the Orange River. And we were working with an NGO, an organization in South Africa, and they are mirroring what we're doing on the South African side of the river. So we'll create a transboundary reserve and we can therefore integrate and reintroduce all the wildlife that used to be on the river and depend on the only annual water source in this biome. You're listening to Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith, and this podcast is sponsored by my friends at Vivo Barefoot. I didn't necessarily have it in mind to work with a sponsor on these podcasts, unless it was a brand and a company that I really love, and Vivo Barefoot falls into that category. Until I met Galahad Clark, founder of Vivo Barefoot, it had never occurred to me that the rigid shoes we wear on our feet all day every day might in fact not be very good for us. Well, with Vivo Barefoot, they figured it out. These are shoes which are flexible and mimic the effect of walking around barefoot. I love mine. I wear them the whole time. I'm a real convert. And I think you will be too. So get a pair at a 15% discount with the code VIVOREWILDING15, which is valid until the 30th of April, 2024. The website is vivobarefoot.com. Read the about section to understand the story better. It's really, really interesting stuff. So I, know, I noticed that you've got Sean Garrity on your board. And Sean, of course, was one of the progenitors of the amazing American Prairie Reserve Project. And we, I had Alison Fox from APR on, on the podcast series earlier in the year. Um, what, what are the parallels between what they're doing in Montana and what you're doing in southern Namibia? Yeah, it's been such a beautiful journey to have Sean Garrity on the board. And he's been an amazing mentor. And, you know, he's done this for the last 30 years. So he's sort of guiding us in, on all the lessons learned and how not to make mistakes and how to um, move along. Um, so Sean and Montana, they, they deal, there's so many parallels. In southern, in Montana, um, they're dealing with cattle ranchers. We're also dealing, um, working with cattle ranchers. There's very similar parallels with the community. And we're dealing with people, you know, and every case study, every land negotiation is so unique. Um, so they are training us up on how to have negotiations, how to have conversations, how to meet people both ways so that everyone can benefit, how to integrate that landowner into Orca. We're not wanting to oust the local community. If we partner with you and you're a neighbor or a landowner, what's your role in Orca? How can you help? You're, you're the expert of your land. You know, how can you help us with the uh, restoration how can you help us identify new boreholes that need to be implemented? How can we rip up all the fences? Where are the alien invasive species on your land? So there's a lot of similar parallels. And they also have a lot of um, knowledge on how to work with government and different stakeholders. What permits do we need and all of that. So, yeah, they've been amazing mentors. Is land purchase the primary tool that you've got? You know, basically just 
buying out these old ranches or are you able to pursue leasehold or other kind of partnerships in any meaningful way? So that's another thing that we're working with APR and the Nature Conservancy to create a menu of different ways to partner with Orca. Land purchase is great. It is um, the the primary tool, but there's many different tools in the toolbox. Some of the neighbors want to be involved and they actually don't want to sell their land and they want to be involved. So there are conservation easements. We don't actually have conservation easement in Namibia, but we have a very similar tool. And yeah, there's different um, membership models. Land in Namibia is very sensitive and very political. So we are involving the ministry in every facet. We're involving Namibian government and local and regional stakeholders as well. We can't be seen to come in and just buy up the whole of southern Namibia. Um, so we're working with different Namibian stakeholders as well and creating a, um, a mosaic where everyone can be involved. And where, where you are purchasing land, presumably the prices are just way, way lower than the price of land in Montana, say. I mean, do you give us a feel for the kind of cost of acquiring some of these ranches. Yeah, I think this is why Sean and Ali are so excited and they're really getting involved and getting behind the project. I mean, it costs us 19 US dollars per acre in southern Namibia. And I think it's important to note that a lot of these properties have been on the market for four, five, six years and nobody's buying. You know, we're not coming in and sort of ousting people. These properties have been sitting on the market. And in order for us to secure our goal of our with our phase three goal, which is um, 500,000 acres, it's only 11 million US dollars. So it's a fraction of what they've got to fundraise in Montana and at the American Prairie Reserve, which is why it's very exciting. And do, do, do the people selling these ranches, do they often keep the house? They, they keep a connection in some way to, to the land? Yeah, I'm very aware that we're working with people and the farmers in the area, they identify as farmers. You know, if they're, if they're selling all of their livestock, if they're selling their land, who are they? What's their identity? Um, we're not coming in to sort of change up the local community and we're very aware of the culture. So we work with farmers differently. For example, the most recent farmer we're, we're purchasing his property, um, he is he signs a life estate with us he'll own his house for the rest of his life and his children will always be able to come on holiday and visit the property and we're actually hiring him to do all the restoration of the land so he's got a job for another year well, what about those in the community that don't own land i mean for example the namibians who've been there for, for for way longer than the european settlers what's your relationship with people like them and what's their relationship with the project yeah, so Orca is a catalyst for change and we're predominantly here to drive the economy of southern Namibia. We need to be an engine for growth. Conservation, rewilding is one of the tools to get there. But if we're not helping the local community, which in large is the Nama people, um, and the Nama people have been extremely marginalized by government. There are six community conservancies in the south, but very little to no effort or activities has happened in any of them. There is zero income coming into any of those conservancies. There's no economy and no enterprise. And at the community conservancy, there's 90% unemployment. So there's a huge food insecurity, there's unemployment, and a lot of health issues at the moment. So as we grow the orca landscape, we will be contiguous with communal and conservancy land. So we've identified two communities that we're working with directly. We've signed an MOU and we're starting there 
um, identifying the low-hanging fruits, rolling out a few projects, which is very much, you know, training, governance, setting up education, building capacity, and then we'll start rolling out the community conservation model. Fantastic. And Andrea, have you had any constituency of people that have been openly hostile to the project or has it been reasonably plain sailing from a community relations and political perspective? Yeah, I'll be very honest. Um, A lot of the farmers are wary. At the moment, a lot of our work is education and awareness and conversations. We've hired only Namibians to work for Orca. Um, We've actually hired one of the local farmer's sons, and he's our reserve liaison. His job is to go around and have cups of teas to the farmer and answer all the questions. There's a lot of stories going around. There's international funding coming through. You know, who is this foreign entity? What are they coming here to do? Are they coming here to take up our land? So... It's a lot of conversations. And yeah, there are some people that are wary. There's some people that do not want to join Orca. And we're we're creating a mosaic. You know, not all of the properties that border current Orca want to join us. And that's okay. It might take 10 years. It might take 20 years. And when you're dealing with conservation, you're dealing with real people. And there are, there's politics involved in bureaucracy. What's it like on the land that you, that you, that you started working on first? I mean, how, how has the restoration manifested itself? Yeah, so when I got there about eight years ago, it was covered in fencing. It was covered in farm fencing, livestock fencing, corrals, um, water troughs, scrap, old cars, so much old ammunition from wars, um, graves, all sorts of stuff, just like a lot of human infrastructure. It was a big cleanup job. And we initially set up tourism expeditions and we ran these conservation expeditions where we convinced school children from the UK and the US to come out and pay to clean up and rewild the land. And it was a really beautiful way to arrive on the land as a disarming approach to work with the community because we didn't come in as a nonprofit. We came in as a tourism venture. And so we worked with the Afrikaners, we worked with the Nama people and we hired everyone and kind of cleaned up the land together. And now the farmers come onto the land and they see what a rewilded core area looks like only seven years in, even though we've had drought and they compare it to their land. And it's unbelievable, Ben. Like if you walk onto the current core area at the moment, there's grass as high as my hips. It's thick. It looks like savannah. There's a fence. And if you cross the fence, it's degraded. It's barren. And that's farmland. You know, And that kind of proof, that's awakened the farmers. What about woody vegetation, kind of shrubs, trees? Do, do, do you see that recovering too? Yeah, that takes longer. But the woody, woody shrubland and, and the browse is definitely recovering as well. Um, the flowers. It's, it's hard to say because we... We have just come out of a seven-year drought and we're doing baseline surveys at the moment. We're a complete blank canvas in terms of science. There's been no scientific research in the area. It's just been farmland. So although we have stories and we have written accounts of all the farmers' wives, which are our best local ecologists, they're amazing, their knowledge, we're only starting now to do proper scientific research. And what about wildlife recovery? Has that started started to take place? Have you found species, for example, that you thought you were going to have to reintroduce, but suddenly they showed up on your camera traps without help. So we removed 52 kilometers of inner boundary fences. And what's really cool is that if you cut a fence and there's water or greener pasture on the other side, 
a mountain's Hartman zebra will find that within 24 hours and they lead the way for all the other wildlife. They open up and they also dig if um, they dig the sand and they open up water for the other wildlife to be able to drink. So that was amazing to see how quickly the zebra came through and led the way for the other wildlife. And then uh, our population, our Hemsworth population and our Springbok population is definitely increasing. But what's really cool is they're getting habituated. They were so skittish and they were so scared when we first came in. The land was hunted and hunted quite gnarly, if I can say that, um, you know, and unethically. And now the wildlife are getting comfortable and they're getting used to the cars, they're getting used to us. And that's really special to see wildlife unafraid. Are there any herbivores missing from the landscape that you probably will have to reintroduce yourselves? Our gene stock is not great at the moment. Um, so before, as we start increasing the landscape, we will bring in more numbers of the current antelope. Um, there aren't any herbivores that we don't have that we could currently get. On the river, we would like to bring in blue wildebeest. And what about carnivores? Yeah, I mean, my my dream, and I'm not leaving Orca until we reintroduce cheetah. They have to be there. You know, um, one of our... One of our neighbors did try and reintroduce cheetah about 10 years ago and they lasted about three weeks. Farmers shot them. So we need to do this slowly. We need to do this sensitively. When we've got buy-in, when everyone's in, you know, we understand, yes, a few livestock might get taken, but it's okay because we're all benefiting from the wider conservation area. So you don't think that cheetah will find their way there naturally? You'll have to reintroduce them in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. We found a spotted hyena on the reserve for the first time, seen in the whole area for 20 years. So the spotted hyena came all the way from the Sperger Beach National Park, we think. But other than that, we're too far away to the closest cheetah. We do have leopard, an abundant population of leopard. We've ID'd 17 um, different leopard. But cheetah, we need to bring in. Lion, wild dog, um, we need a lot more predators and we'll have to actually bring them in. And what about smaller animals, the smaller predators for example little desert foxes and cats and those kinds of things uh, have those been eradicated from the landscape or are they still there no they're they're sneaky they know how to get away no matter how much they get shot so yeah we've got cape foxes we've got aardwolf um we've got jackal we've got lots of the small predators are there and they're doing well bettied foxes as well so what would you say Andrea, that you've got a very powerful tailwind in the sense that conventional farming is really not viable in this landscape. The average age of farmers is creeping higher and higher into the 70s. Their kids don't want to do it. People are moving away. The economic model is simply not working. And therefore, an alternative needs to be found in order to breathe new life back into these communities. Given that, and given the very low land prices, I mean, it seems like this is really doable, like two and a half million acres. It sounds immense. It sounds impossible. But it also seems to me, having spoken to you during the last 20 or so minutes, that this is something that you might actually pull off. Yeah, I think realistically, this is only going to work out if the community drive Orca. You know, we're building capacity at the moment. If the commercial farmers become conservationists, if the Nama people become conservationists and everyone believes in it and everyone backs it and they drive it. I started this about two years ago, but I, I won't be running this for the rest of my life. You know, this has to be beyond me and the community need to run this. So I honestly think it's possible. I can bring in money, I can fundraise, you know, and we can achieve a huge amount of impact um, very quickly. But it's about getting that community buy-in. 
Do you see the leaders coming through among the Nama community, among the farming community who could potentially take this on and devote their lives to it? Yeah, so the last six months have been all about exposure trips. We took a delegation to visit the Northern Rangelands Trust in Kenya, and we took them to visit different conservancies all over Namibia. And it's been an amazing amount of exposure. It's just blown their mind. People in the South did not realize that conservation is even an economic driver or an opportunity, you know, for enterprise. So it's really sort of blown their minds. And now it's about harnessing all of those lessons, applying it to the Southern Namibian context and trying out small projects, you know, and see how it works. Presumably tourism is the big potential source of revenue. Tourism is a source of revenue. We would love to build a digital nomad lodge in um, on Orca. So, um, you know, a beautiful space where people that are remote working can come and hold business meetings, board meetings, all sorts. And then in the afternoon, you can go and track wildlife and you can participate in the rewilding and restoration. But another source of revenue is we're going to do joint venture irrigation farms so food insecurity is a huge problem in southern namibia um so high yielding crops uh, create supply chains sell them in to the local community and then export as well well what's the like the scale of your organization now i mean this is a really huge undertaking like how many people do you have working for you what's your annual budget the operating costs as well as the budget for for buying the land what's the shape of your group So although we've been thinking about Orca for the last sort of seven, eight years, we're actually only into one year of our operations. So about 12 months ago, about a year and a half ago, I went to the UK. I pitched for seed funding. Um, We secured three years of seed funding, which is 1.5 million US. So our annual operating budget is 500,000 a year. We're very small. We're very basic. Um, We had an amazing landowner who donated their land to farms to Orca. So we officially own land now and we can leverage that to fund, to to purchase more properties. We're still sort of scattered around all working from our computers. Um, We don't have a headquarters yet. You know, it's a very basic infrastructure, but we've secured funding for some projects and we're trialing them. So full time on Orca, we've got 10 people working for us at the moment. And yeah, we've got a head of finance, a community program officer, a land negotiator, a strategic officer. And yeah, we're taking it from there. And you've built all of this, Andrea. Tell me this. Are you, um, so presumably you've been in love with nature since your childhood, right? This is like a, this is like a lifelong dream to be doing this kind of stuff. Where did you grow up? So I'm from Brazil. I was born and raised in London, but both of my parents are Brazilian. And I grew up in an international environment in London, went to international school. Um, And since I was little, I remember that my dad used to just take me to all the wildlife zoos and wildlife areas of London and just sit. And I was obsessed with chimpanzees. Um, Jane Goodall was my biggest inspiration. And I actually wanted to be a psychologist for orphan chimps. So (laughs) a bit random. But when I graduated um, from in my master's in primatology, I went out to Sierra Leone and did my research with chimpanzees. And yeah, one thing led to another and I ended up in Namibia. Andrea, I just can't get over my excitement about this project i want to visit you i want to come and see this two and a half million acres of wild land starting to re-emerge and if that great migration of impala can be recovered even if it could be 
10 or 20% recovered. It'll be the kind of abundance that we're not used to seeing in the world today. I think it'd be something that people from all over the world would flock to, to witness. I hope that I can be helpful to you in one way or another. Um, I'm really very grateful to you for taking this time to speak to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate you for inviting us to be here today and share the Orca story. Um, we're so, so new and we're at the beginning of a very long journey and it just feels really grateful that you've chosen us amongst your amazing you know, pool of conservationists. And thank you for your mentorship so far and for your advice so far. And, and I look forward to you being on this journey with us. What an absolute privilege to spend that time with Andrea. I had no idea that the south of Namibia was once so rich in wildlife, and I'm really excited to watch the Orca Project develop and to see those huge herds of springbok return. We're going to be doing these podcasts every two weeks now, so I'd be very grateful to you if you'd spread the word, share these amongst your friends. It all makes a big difference. And with special thanks to Vivo Barefoot for sponsoring and making this podcast possible, Don't forget, you can change your life by buying yourself a pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes with a 15% discount using the code VivoRewilding15. And there's a load more information in the show notes. Next time, I'm going to be talking to David Balharry, who runs the John Weir Trust in the Highlands of Scotland. David's from an old Highlands family, has been immersed in Highlands ecology and culture all his life, and is now at the helm of possibly the most important rewilding organization in Scotland. 